Football on Off The Ball. Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app. Cash out and in-play betting available in the App Store and Google Play Store. So 50 years ago this month, Matt Busby retired as Manchester United manager. They were reigning European Cup champions and within five years they were in the old second division. A turbulent few years to say the least. It's what happens when a dynasty collapses, Joe. So uh, we're going to chat about that uh, later on with the man who's written the book on those turbulent five years, Wilf McGuinness, Frank O'Farrell, of course, Corkman, and then Tommy Doherty, then Scotland manager, and uh, he left the Scottish job to take over at Manchester United. And in, their, in his first season, they were relegated. What's not talked about as much is that Doherty stayed on, got them straight back up into the top division. They were winning the FA Cup final against Liverpool in 77, finished third in the old, in the old first division. To the top, the top tier. Uh, the average age of the team was 24, and they were set to do great things. And then it emerged that Tommy Doherty was having a two-year affair with the physio's wife. Yeah, I was just going to say that that lead to the end of it because I knew there was yeah. like there was a, that was there the was end. A, there was a sordid personal angle. To that was me. literally the end. And uh, Matt Busby, still very much an influential board director, took a massive umbrage with the thing. Had a very moralistic view on things. Interesting. So that was the end for Tommy Doherty. He was fired. They didn't want to fire him. It seems. And uh, imagine Mar- a manager being fired for that now. Mary Brown was the woman's name. Oh. Uh, Tommy Doherty and Mary Brown married each other and are still together today. Tommy Doherty in his 90s. So it was basically a love story then. It was late. I mean, it obviously started out very much as a tawdry affair. It was a love story. But eventually. actually was a love story. Now we can say yeah. it was a love story. It was love that brought the end. It was love. It was meant to be. No, it was. They should have just given the relationship time to see if it was going to work out. Tommy Doherty's in a documentary. We're talking with the author of the book, Too Big to Go Down. And uh, he also worked in the BT documentary on this period. And Tommy Doherty, now 90 or 91, is very much part of the documentary. Still has a full head of hair and still has a lot of bite about him. You know, says it was, you know, I'm amazed I was fired over a matrimonial issue. (laughs) <laughs> like it. Yeah. Uh, but still thinks it was crazy he was sacked. But did a good job. And actually that, you know, quite often how the Manchester United story around that time ends is with Dennis Law's back heel. And, it's, mm. and that was that. But actually they bounced back fantastically well. And the Tommy Doherty team is seen as a potentially great team that split up very quickly after he left. It is mad. I, I saw the FA Cup uh, show last night and was it, maybe it was Blackpool on Sunday and there was a tribute paid, I can't, I can't think of the guy's name, a guy who had passed away, a club legend, yeah. who had basically, during his pomp, had Wolves? Bera- bera- was, was it a Wolves player? Because Robbie Keane was there, it was Liverpool Wolves. I know, yeah, Blackpool, play, Blackpool played Arsenal. Daily. Was it? But he'd berated, uh, one of his things he was known for on the pitch was like berating people for using bad language. Is that right? That was one of his... Uh, things. Know, class. These were the things that just weren't tolerated. What would he make of Wayne Hennessy, Dan? Well, this is it. He wouldn't, wouldn't be too fond of, of Wayne Hennessy. Do, do, do people need to be brought up to date with the Wayne Hennessy story? If Can I just jump in for a quick second? Okay. Right, we're in the smartphone era. Right. I had heard the Wayne Hennessy story earlier on in the news round before I saw the Wayne Hennessy photo. Okay. I think you benefit enormously from seeing the photo. Yes. Can you describe the photo, Joe? Well, you see, I mean, so Wayne Hennessy is out with his teammates. and is that for a meal? Yeah, the photo was taken by a German. Grimsby in the FA Cup, so, you know. It's a big one. The photo seems to have been taken by his German teammate. Max Meyer. So there's several teammates there. Some of them are just looking at the camera, others are waving. And so Wayne Hennessy was accused of making a Nazi salute, Mm. but seems to have denied that's what he was doing. So I thought, well, maybe it's vague or maybe it's grey. What that description doesn't really uh, describe is that it's the two-handed Nazi salute. So the old left hand has gone to do the fake moustache thingy. Mm. 
Now that's that's where it starts going from a, a, accidental appears and to be, appearing. Appears to be doing the fake <laughs> yeah. testing. Because I mean, I have crucial heard, words, Joe. Appearing, appearing to be doing. No, no, allegedly appearing, all that kind of stuff. Denies it uh, strongly, but. Uh, I just thought, well, maybe there could have been a straight-armed wave that, you know, without Wayne Hennessy thinking, might have looked like a Nazi salute. Mm. But actually, it's the left hand which is his undoing, I feel. Yes. So that's, <laughs> yeah. I just think you need to see the photo to understand Well, if, if Wayne Hennessy wasn't just waving, uh, in my humble opinion, well, I've, if which pe- he denies. If people have, um, we mentioned earlier in the news round, if people happen to have watched that episode of Father Ted, where, he, <laughs> where, where Ted happens to accidentally stand behind that window pane with the unfortunate sort of... Uh, Perfectly square piece of dirt. Yeah, and that position, and makes a gesture... Just, you know, an innocent gesture. Yeah. It looks a particular way. This picture has a certain appearance to it that uh, provoked some comments. So Wayne Hennessy then has to get on to Instagram or Twitter late on Sunday night. I, I'm sure he does. It's a serious matter. He does, and it's a, it's a well-crafted statement. Okay. It, it, people have watched the take of it and a few other programs of this nature. <laughs> Come on, all right, okay. So here we go. Yesterday evening, I had a meal with my teammates, and we had a group photograph. Yeah. He starts. Yeah. I waved and shouted at the person taking the picture to get on with it, and at the same time, put my hand over my mouth to make the sound carry. It has been brought to my attention. Hang <laughs> on a second. <laughs> so, sorry, he's saying he waved to say. Actually, sorry, I'm not going to reenact. <laughs> He Do waved. not reenact it, Joe. He waved. We don't want you making a statement later on tonight. He right? waved to say hurry up and put his m- hand over his mouth so, so the sound would carry. Get on with it, mate. So we have a whole team full of people um, smiling or looking gormlessly at the camera. Yeah. But Wayne at the back is concerned by the time that this is taken. They're and in a big uh, rush, I'm he's sure. He's in a rush. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the starters could be on the way. And he shouts at his German, the German taking the photograph. It's another unfortunate coincidence. Okay, so, uh, so sorry. I, I, he I, continues. I sorry. To say, so, um, yeah. Yeah, it has been brought to my attention that frozen in a moment by the camera, this looks like I am making a completely inappropriate type of salute. Right. I can assure everyone that I would never ever do that, and any resemblance to that kind of gesture is absolutely coincidental. Love and peace, Wayne. Fair enough. Look, he's entitled to deny anything. So unfortunately then, this naturally, the, the response uh, seems to be less, I mean, maybe we shouldn't be trivialising it, it was less outrage and more humorous. The response from people sort of were laughing there at the whole kind of, yeah. I mean, okay, this is an interesting statement to have to be released. Now, my favourite response is someone has doctored an old Twitter account here to, okay. to imagine that it's 1995 and okay. Eric Cantona logs on to his Twitter account okay. after a game against Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. 26th of January 1995, his statement. Yesterday evening, I was playing against Crystal Palace, says this Cantona figure. Uh-huh. I saw a wasp about to attack a young child in the crowd <laughs> and being a footballer thought it would be best if I kicked it away. Yeah. It's been brought to my attention that frozen in a moment by the camera this looks like I am trying a kung fu kick, trying to kung fu kick a Crystal Palace supporter. <laughs> I can assure everyone I would never ever do that and any resemblance to that kind of gesture is absolutely coincidental. coincidental. Love and peace, Eric. Eric, listen. There we go. We're all entitled to our own reality. Mm. It's like Jeremy Corbyn a few weeks back saying he said stupid person and not stupid woman, even though his lips clearly made the shape of a W and man. Well, I'm not clear who actually put the photograph. So it it was posted on Max's Instagram story, the German teammate's Instagram story. So, uh, I mean, is he furious with Max or was this something in the moment? I'd say Max put it up without even seeing the gesture. Mm. I don't think he'd land your teammate in it. Especially no. when it's such a coincidental issue. Well, this is it. I mean, there's a lot of questions to be raised about Max's role. Unless Max role. spotted it and thought, do you know what? Mm. 
I've had enough of you doing this to me, Wayne. <laughs> Every time. Every bloody time. You keep shouting to me to get on with my pictures. Yes. <laughs> and this keeps happening. Don't, so Don't put your hand over your mouth and shout at me like that. Yeah. So, uh, well, dear, and, and so I look, I presume this will just go away for Wayne. Yeah, you probably have to do the statement, but I'm not sure if it's actually, it's probably made, made it a bigger story. So uh, what else is going on then in the world of football then? The world of football. Wait, well, it's still Spurs won Chelsea, you know, 55 minutes on the clock. Harry Kane's penalty the VAR penalty a few other bits and bobs going on well there's an Everton meeting going on tonight we should okay. say there uh, it's one of these um, great things that happen now where they have to come out to a public meeting to shareholders and actually give some honest quotes you know and actually speak about situations so um, Farad Mashiri has been there now it, it seems that Everton are going to build a, a new stadium well that's been floated obviously and one of the earlier stories that's coming out of the gig tonight is you know they're, they're, they're going to spend 500 million and Mashiri's pumping a lot more money into it which is which is grand I think that's what people want to hear but Mashiri obviously had to take the stage at some point to speak about the club's current situation and he's thrown out a couple of chance uh, choice quotes it seems like he's maybe a bit frustrated about the amount of money he's spent uh, and yet Everton are still sort of floundering around wherever they are. Mm. And his direct quote, which is doing the rounds, is, I have spent 250 million on turning a museum into a competitive outfit, Oof. is his line. Okay. Um, and also says, I look at the table and it is just not good enough. So, right. some nervy moments. I mean, he does say, we put a big bet on Marco, well, that's Marco Silva, and we stick with him. But it's just the kind of language and tone you know that would make you slightly uncomfortable. Reminiscent of there when you were describing that when you watch the Sunderland documentary on Netflix, you yes. get a real sense from that that Ellis Short put in a ton of money into Sunderland and thought, well, that's going to do the trick. And then actually was shocked and appalled to find out it hadn't and almost lost interest. And it seems here like uh, Farshad, Far Farhad Mashiri. Mashiri was expecting things to be a whole lot sweeter for all the money he's put in. And it's just not. I mean, you just, we, I mean the whole Leicester thing is incredible, but you step away from that. Like, it's hard to put a figure on what sort of finance is required to break into this established, no, this established elite that are yeah. pumping in that Champions League money every year. Um, I tell you what, it's not for the lack of trying. They're, I mean, they're trying to get money, Everton. There was the story last week about how much it costs to be a mascot at Premier League clubs, and Everton are charging quite a lot of money. If you want to be the Everton mascot, £718 mm. for your little kid to be the mascot. It's a lot of cash. So when you look at all the kids now at Premier League games, and you think, God, that's so cute. I hope they, you know, they, were given a, they won a prize from the community. Yeah. No, they are spoiled brats. It sort of explains why those lads dressing up their made for a stag went lower than the, the league ladder, you know? Everton, yeah. 718 pounds. West Ham, 700 pounds. Leicester, 600. Spurs, 405. Uh, Wolves, 395. Free, free. Arsenal, Chelsea, Fulham, Huddersfield, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Newcastle, Southampton and Everton. Okay, so they're all not brats, I take that back. No. Uh, no. They're mostly not then. Some, some of the clubs there are, are, have other dubious regimes attached to them. No, I'm sure. Free for mascots, though. But it's such a penny-pinching way to try and make a few quid in the grand scheme of things. In the grand no, scheme of yeah. uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions flowing in, but this be is charging kids 700 quid to be a mascot. But this is how, you know, this is, this is how the wealthy stay wealthy, you know? <laughs> they don't, you know they, it's like you hear these sort of multi-million clubs who spend X amount in hospitality, like will come to Ireland and try and offer you know, yeah. few, you know, 500 quid for a player or something, do you know what I mean? What's the word on Matt Doherty then? 
Yeah, well, Matt Doherty, I mean, I had a story in The Independent today about Matt Doherty's current situation. Um, when I say situation, I mean, he's having an absolutely fantastic year. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, he's having, uh, you know, he's probably being the standout Irish player this season uh, in tandem with Declan Rice, if you want to sort of count him as, as Irish, uh, which we still can. Um, but he's 26. He's on a deal that was negotiated when he was in the championship. And naturally enough, he's in the big league doing pretty well. And that leads to interest in, in Matt Doherty right. and he doesn't have an agent, he's never really operated say with an agent, he's been at one club pretty much since 2010 since he left Bowes to go to Wolves. He's on about 20 grand a week. That 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 sort of ballpark figure we believe yeah and Contract I mean, that, that's, that's, that's excellent money in the championship yeah. and I'm sure there's no suggestion that Matt Doherty's unhappy in any way by the way but um, He's, he's in a dressing room where people will be earning a lot more. He's in a league where people will be earning a lot more. And I think people are aware of that. And well, there I suspect he'll be the lowest earning player of the month this year in the Premier League. I would have thought so, yeah. Uh, and so there's competition. And this is he's moving into a, a new bracket now where it's not just, say, clubs want him, but there'll be representatives and agents and people wanting to get Matt Doherty on board. That's yeah. certainly something that has been happening. Because right. um, they know that this is a, there's a lucrative deal probably to be done here. And uh, but what it seems like Matt Doherty is leaning towards doing is signing up with Jorge Mendes, Whoa. which is um, that is the big league. Yeah, you know that's when you're moving into. I don't think he's had an Irish uh, playing client, you know, before. And then most of the Wolves squad, of course, is our Mendes clients. Okay. Um, yeah. The, he's, an, he's an advisor to the club and he's been the driving force in bringing like Ruben Neves and Rui Patricio and Matinho and all these players there. And I think, I mean, I saw a, a pre-season piece about a Wolves game where it was sort of, the theory was that nine of the starting 11 would be Mendes clients and the two exceptions would be Matt Doherty and Conor Cody, who were the two players that were there before this, this sort of turnover happened. Um, so it's sort of logical that I mean, mm. those two <laughs> at some point would be given the nod. Um, but I, I guess you know, it, it, it opens interesting doors if that's the way that he goes. I mean, some of these Mendes players move from club to club. You wonder longer term what happens um, to Matt Doherty. I mean, it means in the shorter term he's more likely to stay in Wolves when it would appear there's actually other clubs looking at him very seriously now. Um, but if he goes with Mendes, I guess you know it means he probably stays where the Mendes club is right now. But also, yeah. I mean, longer term it is pretty interesting because he is getting better. Like he's 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 twenty six, so yeah. you can spin it. But the, the other thing here is, um, you know, he's in a great position, and, and people would argue, and I understand the you know, influence, good influences around him, not wanting him to get unsettled by anything. But the flip side of that is. This is, might be his window. This might be his chance to get into that high earning bracket that he deserves on current form. Mm. And once you get there, you sort of stay there for the rest of your career. You, you know, certainly slow down on one, the way down. Like yeah. one, you know, like you see, you see. I'm not mentioning it in a piece today. The likes of Gareth Barry, who was on eighty grand a week at West Brom. He was on eighty grand a week at West Brom because he was at Man City. And he, once you graduate to that territory at that club, then it's yeah. almost hard to come down. I think Darren Fletcher was in very good money as well. Like once you get up to that level you sort of tend to stick with it yeah. and I mean you just have to there comes a point where you have to look after number one and if this is your time to strike you have to do that deal and get up there because this this could make a big difference to your longer term life you well, know this will be the most lucrative contract he'll ever sign yeah you would think so at 26 at 27 you know wherever he goes wherever he does if you sign a four or five year deal yeah this is the big one yeah. so you have to get it right and, and you know make sure that you know you get, you get the best deal for yourself right. and I suppose there's a there's a debate there obviously Mendes has a very close relationship with Wolves too so you can is there you, not a conflict you, there well I mean this is this has always been this has been raised by opponents of Wolves in the championship last year uh, and certainly that 
that link allowed them to bring in very good players. But yeah, to spin it into a into a negotiations context. Um, well, just if I'm Doherty and, and Mendez is my agent, is he working for me or is he working for the well, club? Well, that's that's a, that's a value. I'm mad I can get you fifty. Well, that's a that's a question. I think that's like that that is one of the angles that spins out of this. I think you know there's a glamour in going with the Mendez thing, yeah. and there's a probably pragmatism in terms of like I mean the, the Wolves manager was Mendez's first ever client, first ever deal he done with the Wolves manager. Does so Mendez stand up in front of all his clients like he did at Ronaldo's dinner and tell him how, how amazing he is? You are the greatest. I mean, I'm not sure if you could do them all at the same time. That would sort of defeat the purpose of like the individual praise. But uh, yeah, he's got probably angles to think about there. But yeah. I mean, it's a, good position, it's a short yeah. career, and you, you know, he's 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 earned good money throughout it. Yeah. But this is uh, this is another level. Yeah, no doubt. Um, okay, Spurs are still one nil up on Chelsea. 64 minutes on the clock. Uh, next up, 50 years since Matt Busby announced his resigna- resignation and uh, kicked off a fairly infamous five six years. Football on off the ball. Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app. Cash out and in play betting available in the App Store and Google Play Store. It is, of course, January 2019, which means we have hit the 50-year anniversary of Matt Busby announcing he would be retiring as Manchester United manager. Uh, Manchester United reigning European champions at the time, and very famously or infamously, within five short years, they were somehow playing in the old second division. Uh, We are joined on the line by Wayne Barton, who has chronicled a turbulent and infamous time in Manchester United history in his book, Too Good to Go Down. Wayne, thanks for joining us. Thank you, thank you. So, 50 years since Matt Busby sat up and said, I'm done. Was there any great surprise when Busby retired in January 1969? Yeah, I think it was a massive shock, um, as, as it would be. It was seismic um, for United. Those who probably knew Busby best might not have been shocked by it um, because the signs were there for a while, you know, and it was very much the feeling that Wembley was the culmination of a journey rather than the start of another great team. Mm. Um, And as he said in his announcement for the retirement, I think the headline was, I've lost my grip, you know, on the modern modern football players and the celebrity status that is nothing like it is today, but then it was George Best was the fifth Beatle and it was a little bit different to what he was used to dealing with. And I think it was... um, he just felt that the time was right to um, step aside and let a younger man. He thought it was a younger man's game at that time. However, I mean, the, like we said, I think Wembley '68 was the culmination rather than the start of um, the start of the next great side. We do predominantly want to talk to you about what happened over the next five, six, seven years. But on Busby for a moment, is the general consensus amongst people who knew him and who were aware of how things were working? Uh, that he was right, that he had lo- not lost touch, but he felt himself he had to to a degree lost touch. But did people generally feel it was the right time for him to go? I can't, I'm not quite sure how old he was at the time. Yeah, I mean, he was younger than Sir Alex was when when Sir Alex called it a day. But Busby was also he was he, tormented by Munich. You know, he was much older than his years at that point, and mm-hmm. and he was ready. I mean, it was a miracle that he lasted as long as he did, you know, to get them to Wembley and, and build that other great side. Um, there was a school of thought that, you know, he was becoming, I don't want to say the words because they sound horrible in, in the context of what we're talking about, but he, there was the idea that he was becoming a bit of a tactical dinosaur. There was some new kids on the block, you know, Reeve, um, Clough, 
Ramsey had won the World Cup without wingers. You know, there was a lot of innovation going on, and and there was the idea that Busby was um, was falling behind. Yeah, um, I I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think football's cyclical, and I think that you know, as we've seen with United, this um, in the in the contemporary age, you know, there's a certain um, idea about identity that should be adhered to as well. Um, but I just think it's sort of lost his interest a little bit once he'd, once he'd won the, the biggest prize. Mm. It prompted yeah. this amazing period then. Wilf McGuinness, Frank O'Farrell and ultimately Tommy Doherty. If we start with McGuinness, Busby's immediate replacement. He was 31 years of age. It was a shock all round that Wilf McGuinness was given the job. Um, he knew a lot of the players. He'd had a playing career himself, but then through injury had got into coaching early on and even he himself wasn't aware he was getting the job until relatively um, late in the day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think United had quoted a couple of names before then um, as well. The, the idea that um, Jock Steen might have taken over. Um, so I'm not sure how, how late in the process it was that Wilf became the, the, the front runner for the job. Um, we, and again, it was a fairly revolutionary thing for United to have done at that point, you know, a point from within. Um, get someone of their own to sort of lead using the same principles. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for Will because, um, like you say, he was a player for the club, but he never reached the heights of a, a best, a low, or a Charlton, so it was difficult to get their respect, um, especially the ones we hadn't played alongside, such as um, Dennis Law or Alex Stepney, who had won the greatest prizes, and, you know, to try and get the same respect out of, um, well, for, for Wilf that they did for Sir Matt would have been very difficult indeed and that proved to be his undoing really. So, I mean, I mean he was no shrinking violet, he did attempt to impose himself on that dressing room. Yeah, I mean, he, he tried what he could, but I mean, the, he would make an example out of, for example, Bobby Charlton and if that didn't go well, in, in, in the example that's used in the book is a, a great story that's told by Willie Morgan that Bobby wanted to go to a meeting down in London and he attended, um, he, he got dressed for, after training and he came back out in his um, in his suit and he had his hands in his pockets and apparently they weren't allowed to do that at training because, you know, it broke code or something. So so Wilf made him do 10 press-ups in, in the mud in the suit, mm. which didn't go down well because it was Bobby Charlton. And, um, and there was another time Alex Stepney um, was dropped and instead of, talking to Wilf about it, he went straight to Busby because, he, as he still described Busby mm. as the boss, you know, and Busby um, sort of smoothed the waters to get Stepney back in the side, but um, the sort of damage was being done by that kind of ice wheeler. Yeah. The Bobby Charlton story highlights a fairly cack-handed approach. I don't know about cack-handed. I just think it was one of those perhaps understandable things that he tried to do to try and show people who were boss, but at that point... The results weren't great, you know, and it was very difficult for him to exert his control when um, the results on the pitch weren't backing up his his quality as a manager, you know. So it very difficult for for him to stamp that authority. He was Busby's choice. What did Busby see in him? Do you think? I think it was that idea, the same um, kind of principles that Fergie said when you know when Moyes was appointed, you know, that sort of cut from the same cloth, and the idea that. I mean, Busby, after he retired, he named it like a list of five or six um, criteria in the newspaper that 
United managers must have. And McGuinness sort of fit most of them, apart from you know, apart from having the experience. Um, so the the idea was that because he knew the club, and I guess it, that was basically it. You know, the, the the idea that he he knew so much about the club that he could keep it running like a, a well-oiled machine. But um, I, I think it was a novel idea, but it just didn't work. Quite naturally, you can lay a lot of the blame for what happened at the doors of the various managers here. But we are talking about an ageing, if once great team. And that was a huge issue for all the managers to try and confront. And then you have George Best, the complications in his life are uh, boiling away. There's a clip here I want to play, it's, and it's in the documentary that was, I, I guess, you know, you consulted on and your book was a part of uh, the BT Sport documentary, Too Good to Go Down. And it's Bobby Charlton speaking, it seems like, on the uh, night that Manchester United had been relegated, or certainly in the weeks afterwards, in 1974, and his general sense of the malaise, as you'll hear, that set in, even pre-68. Have a listen. Who, who do you blame? I, I, I would think it stems for the fa- from the fact that United were on top for so long that unless you, you're in the position to recognise it and recognise that you need change, um, that you're going to fail, and I'm afraid that's what happened with United. Fortunately, we won the European Cup in 1968. Everything since that seems to have been an anticlimax. But possibly, um, Sir Matt Busby missed out and sh- should have changed the team a lot, uh, possibly even prior to that. I think possibly for, for the past three or four years, there's been lots of occasions when I could have been left out of the team, really. but. Uh, maybe reputation swayed his decisions. I think it should have been changed a lot earlier than it has been, though. But it's very, it's very sad, you know, see the club going down like that. I hope they do better. Is there a general consensus on Busby's comments? Yeah, that's... Um, the funny thing is about those comments from Bobby was, was that United hadn't been relegated. I think those comments were after his own retirement in 73. Okay. So he's speaking okay. in a general sense about, you know, United's malaise. But I think that actually makes... His comments actually stronger, you know, they're more they're more pertinent mm. with that because he's not speaking with the hindsight of oh well they've been relegated. Obviously there are there are problems, you know. So right, that's amazing to hear because the documentary starts with that interview and it does look as if it's been given literally almost a match of the day on the night that they've been relegated and they said well let's get in Bobby Charlton. So I didn't realise how prescient actually he was being. Yeah, and and to, to be fair to him himself as well, I mean to to say that he could have been dropped. However. The, the stories along the timeline of, you know, it's all right, Charlton saying that with hindsight, and I don't want to speak ill of one of the greatest legends that's ever kicked a ball for the mm. club. But there there was, um, he was a major player in the in the um, problems that United were having, you know, in terms of the player power. I mean, Frank O'Farrell, um, Wolf's successor, dropped Bobby for a game, and um, Bob Busby went to O'Farrell to tell him that he shouldn't drop Charlton, you know, and it's funny to hear Charlton say that he could have been dropped, mm. but then when it actually came to it, you know, no footballer actually likes to be dropped, do they so? No, it's true. So Frank O'Farrell, we're all familiar with, he's a Cork man. A number of the players in the documentary, well, they were, they were unanimous in saying that he was a very good man, but a number felt he was quite lost or felt was dwarfed by the scale of the job. Talk to us about Frank O'Farrell's era. Yeah, I think what happened was he, he at the uh, at the ground running. His um, first six months in charge were brilliant. Mm. He, he's, it was um, 
I forgot the name of his assistant, Musgrove, um, came in and did a great job. They they were um, they were the young thing in England. They had come from Leicester City. They had a great reputation, and they breathed new life into these United players um, because they did have a reputation elsewhere. I think that the um, the likes of Best and Charlton did. Um, by into it at the start and Dennis Law I think they all thought well alright we'll give him a chance and for the first five or six months they played as well as they had done at any point under Busby the football was absolutely incredible but the problem was like you said earlier they had a leaky defence an ageing defence as well and the games that they were winning scoring four goals five goals but they were conceding two or three goals every game nearly Mm. and then when when that sort of turnaround came where the, the, the attacking goals didn't come quite so often and they were still shipping goals. Um, that was the first sticky period for O'Farrell, naturally. But at that point, he hadn't made a change yet. And I think he couldn't believe how well it had gone. But then he hadn't been as prescient as, you know, we were saying Charlton was earlier. He hadn't been as prescient with that. He thought that he might carry, him, carry on for the rest of the season. And by the time he started making changes, it was really too late to turn around the, the general form of the side. And he brought in some great players, don't get me wrong, Martin Buchan, but Martin Buchan needed time to adapt and he couldn't stem that um, ship all by himself, especially when he, he was that first signing brought in by um, O'Farrell. So, he, you know, the, the players who were so successful, naturally a little bit hesitant to get used to this new leader at the centre of defence as well. Mm. So... After Christmas, it sort of um, fell Fell by the wayside. Yeah, so they finished eighth in Farrell's first season. The second half of the season, a disaster, and then ultimately, Christmas uh, 1972, he was sacked, which United third from bottom. Oh, Farrell can count himself very unlucky in that it was around that period that George Best became unmanageable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the summer, his first summer in charge. Well, his only summer in charge really at the club. the the preseason was dominated by Best. Um, you know, Best had gone off, and he had to convince him to come back. And I don't even think it was a case of O'Farrell desperately trying to convince him, but it was more on Best's whim that oh, I'm going to come back now. I didn't really want to quit. I had sort of said that to get away from the the press speculation um, because I, he'd grown disinterested by United's um, by his own admission. By the way, I'm not doing him a disservice with that. Best had grown disinterested by United's. Um, loss of form because Dennis Law was struggling with a knee injury. Bobby Charlton was one of the older heads now and there was a lot of responsibility on best shoulders and he, he wasn't interested when, when United was struggling. So that left O'Farrell with a massive problem, obviously, mm. because he had to start thinking about how he was going to replace these players. Um, I'm sure he had the idea, obviously, he brought in Ian Story more as a like-for-like like for George Best, but then Best came back and he can't drop a George Best, he can't you can't kick him out of the club, yeah. but he became a massive problem for O'Farrell. We can probably deduce a lot about this period in Manchester United history by the advice that Tommy Doherty says Frank O'Farrell gave him upon uh, replacing Frank O'Farrell. They had played together at Preston, so they, they were on relatively good terms, even though uh, Tommy Doherty, then the Scotland manager, um, leaving the Scottish job to take the Manchester United job. And he said uh, that the advice Frank O'Farrell gave him was just beware of Busby. And beware of some of the players, Dennis Law, Paddy Crerand in particular, Willie Morgan. If they're not in the team, they'll stir up trouble for you. So we'll come on to the players in a moment. Beware of Busby. I think a lot of us from this um, distance do wonder what kind of presence Busby was after he retired. Um, was he toxic? Was he inadvertently toxic? Was he absolutely fine? 
I don't. I think toxic's the wrong word, but I, I know. I know what you're saying. I don't disagree with the principle of it because I think I'll, I'll change it to unhelpful. Yeah, but it was more like um, he he thought he was being helpful. So because he was that like go go between between because he was when he when he left or when he sort of retired, he became um, the general manager of the club. So yeah. he was effectively an administration manager but he wasn't really people the players still saw him around the place he was still the boss so they went above his head to Wilf uh, from Wilf to, to, to Busby and that never changed with O'Farrell and it was more difficult for O'Farrell obviously McGuinness would acquiesce to that because Busby was his superior for so many years and he would never speak ill of him whereas it was a lot more jarring for O'Farrell who thought he would have more control over these kind of matters yeah. but the players yeah. were still going above his head to Busby. Now, Busby was very loyal to a lot of these players who've been with him on this very emotional journey. They'd, they'd won him this prize um, that it'd become his life's mission, really, and he couldn't stand to go against them. So, effectively, he was trying to smooth the waters over, but creating more harm than good unwittingly. You know, he wasn't meaning to do it. Unfortunately, that was the problem that he caused because in every act of um, involvement, he was undermining the manager whether he liked it or not because the players were only going to him if they wanted to undermine O'Farrell. Mm. So, Frank O'Farrell also mentioned some of the players, if they're left out of the team they're going to stir up trouble, like Dennis Law who ultimately Tommy Doherty got rid of. Uh, Law was having injections in his knee, he was, he was rarely fit at that stage so these were really difficult players to manage it seemed at that time in their careers. Possibly, I mean you've got the idea that these these experienced players who are coming to the end with egos that match that, um, they could be quite difficult to manage. I mean, spoke to, to Dennis for the documentary mm. and the idea of him getting, you know, the, the injections in the knees from his point of view, he, he was doing more on to his body than good in terms of wanting to come back and wanting to fight through the pain to help a struggle inside. Yeah. However, However, when it translates into poor performances on the pitch and the fact that he wasn't training regularly, it does come across in, as a selfish um, pursuit. Although it wasn't that he was, you know, he was doing that for the good of the side. Um, the, there are well documented problems that Ducky had with many of those players, um, such as Willie Morgan and Paddy Creran, who was retired by that point. I'm not sure how much, how many problems O'Farrell had with those. I think okay. he. Okay. His, his major problems were with Charlton and Best, you know, and and, and perhaps Stepney as well. There was a there was a few of those senior players. Crerand maybe because he ended Crerand's career, but then you have the you. And we are talking about a tumultuous period in United history, but these are also football problems that mm. happen at every single club. It's not like O'Farrell unwittingly rocked the boat more than any other manager, mm. you know. Every manager has to be responsible for ending players' careers at clubs and they're never going to be popular when they do that. As I mentioned, Doherty was the Scottish manager and he was given the Manchester United job. Uh, he is a force of nature and even in the documentary, well, he's, he's in his 90s now or just turned 90, uh, he's still got his full head of hair and he's still, you know, I mean, we'll get on to his sacking ultimately, but he's unhappy about that. He is still uh, spiky, I would say. So he was definitely spiky in his day. Yeah, very, um, very on it. Very, um, he's got his side, um, which he's entitled to, and that differs from a lot of the, the players' opinions. But as Paddy Barkley says in the in the film, and he said it perfectly, 
that um, every decision that Dockett took was for the benefit of Manchester United. And like I was saying with O'Farrell, uh, particularly O'Farrell could have done it, but he wasn't allowed to because he was sacked. Mm. Dockett was then given that responsibility of clearing out those players and starting afresh. So he was never going to be completely popular because there were some massive names that he had to get rid of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, they were, I mean, they did it in such a um, quick turnaround as well, which is, you know, that's pretty crazy to think of the, the speed in which Charlton Long Best all left the club. Yeah, difficult uh, players to replace. And George Best came back. It seems Matt Busby may be interfering again. Attempted best back, and that didn't last very long. And, and he went off the rails again very, very quickly. And in 1974, the unthinkable happens, and Manchester United are relegated. I, I, part of this story, I have to confess. I mean, any any time I watch documentaries about this period, it tends to end with the Dennis Law goal. You know, that's that's kind of got it. You know, what a what a fall from grace, and Dennis Law relegated Manchester United. Now, Dennis Law is at pains to point out that actually Birmingham against Norwich relegated Manchester United, although we all point to his goal. And then it's the rebuilding that Tommy Doherty does, which is uh, quite impressive. Straight back up out of the old second division and uh, very, very quickly they win the 77 Cup final against Liverpool. The average age of the side is 24 years of age. They finish third in the first division. There is a sense by 1977, 96, 97, 76-77, uh, that Manchester United are back, that Doherty has done a fairly extraordinary rebuilding job and the team is young. And they are all set to kick on before the most unpredictable of things happens. Yeah, um, I mean, you can have different opinions of that because it's a lost potential thing, isn't it? Much in, in the same way that we talk about the lost potential of the, the 58 side who sadly perished and what they could have gone on to achieve. Obviously, it's not on the same level no. of that um, whatsoever. But um, there is, when we look at the, the direct comparison the 96 United side, which beat Liverpool in the FA Cup final, had exactly the same average age as, as that one in 77. Right. So we know what they went on to achieve. Um, and, and obviously that 77 side was broken up fairly swiftly after, well, some of the major um, components that side were taken out. Um, yeah, they, they could have gone on to better, especially when you look at Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa and what they went on to achieve in the following years. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, United had to beat this behemoth in Liverpool. Mm. There are some second division sides who were down there with United who went and won European Cups. So there's a very strong argument to say that United could have ended that way for a league title or even a European Cup mm. um, much sooner than what they did have to wait. But um, we'll never know. And, and to be fair... I think Doherty was in. He's still in a stage of his rebuilding job. You know, there was the there's two or three more players to add to that side certainly um, before they could say that they were um, likely contenders. The end for Doherty comes. I think. I mean, it's pretty famous. I think at this stage, um, he fell in love with Mary Brown, who happened to be the wife of the Manchester United physio and one of um, Doherty's real allies, Larry Brown. And a two-year affair surfaced and Manchester United took the decision to sack Doherty in the documentary. He certainly feels it was the wrong decision. He's, he's amazed at the decision that a matrimonial thing could affect his, um, his position. Uh, I hadn't realised actually that he married Mary Brown and Tommy Doherty and they're still together. So it, it proved to be a, you know, a lifelong love affair. But that was the end, the most bizarre circumstances. Uh, Matt Busby, according to Martin Edwards, was pretty... Uh, moralistic about the whole thing in, in his view as to what should happen to Doherty when it surfaced. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think Busby's was the um, 
the defining vote, so to speak. I think right. at that point, I, I don't think Doc, they wanted to sack him. You know, I think that was the last option. But they, when it came down to it, there was um, the idea that obviously that this affair had been going on for a long time, mm. and yeah. and the crux of the matter is one of them would have to lose their job, either Doherty or, or the physio, and you can't sack the physio for... That would, have, that would have been completely the wrong thing to do. And, yeah. you know, they had to sack Doherty. I, I, I mean, I've grown very fond of Tommy. This isn't the only project I've worked on with him. He's um, helped me with n- numerous books in the past, and I'm the, the first and foremost advocate of how good that side could have been and what a great job he, he did do and how... Highly, he should be commended for the work that he did do. I just can't see a way that he could have carried on, really, you know, in, in the job that he had, because it would have been difficult for the players to have respected him after that um, yeah. as well. An extraordinary couple of years, and it all kicked off this month, 50 years ago, with Matt Busby announcing his retirement. Uh, Wayne Barton, author of Too Good to Go Down. Thanks so much for chatting to us, Wayne. Thank you. Football on Off The Ball Brought to you by the Boyle Sports app Cash out and in-play betting Available in the App Store and Google Play Store